Well, hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30, taken right out of the pages of the monthly print journal that you now know as Storyboard Memphis. Storyboard 30 brings some of those same Memphis personalities and shapers right here into the WYPL studios for 30 minutes of talk to hear about their passions, their initiatives, or to just talk a little bit about what makes Memphis Memphis. On acoustic guitar for our show intro was our friend Jeff Hewlett. Jeff is a regular contributor to Storyboard Memphis and plays regularly with his friend Leah Keys in their duo, Leah and Me. And I am Mark Fleischer, publisher of Storyboard Memphis and your host for the next half hour of Storyboard 30. My guest today is Anasa Troutman. She is the executive director of the historic Claiborne Temple. With regard to both the Claiborne and Miss Troutman, as I was putting together my show notes, a specific word emerged, and that word is restoration. First, restoration as in building restoration. This year, the curators of the Claiborne begin work on fully restoring this sacred place, the place that served as a safe haven for sanitation workers during the 1968 sanitation strike, and the place where the famous I Am a Man signs were printed and distributed. And second meaning of restoration here, as in restoring the city and the community through conversations within the space itself. It was in that spirit that former executive director Rob Thompson considered who to lead this multi-layered restoration. So Rob said three things became clear early on. First, that an artistic use of the space felt important and authentic. Second, that a robust and intentional community engagement process was necessary. And finally, that this sacred African-American space demanded a visionary African-American leader to move it into its next phase. And that is where Anasa Troutman comes in. Anasa, welcome. Thank you. How are you today? I am so good. (laughs) (laughs) After rushing around to get here, right? Yes, it was a pleasure to rush around to get here. You've been in this position for not quite a year. Not quite. July 2nd, 2018 was my first day. Okay, Mm -hmm. July 2nd. So like seven months, maybe? Okay. Eight months. And you're from Atlanta? Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) So in talking (laughs) last week, right, we talked about this. Yes, I like to tell people I was raised in New Jersey, but I became a woman in Atlanta. I went to college in Atlanta. I lived there for a long time. So like all the things that make me who I am as a grown-up, I learned in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So kind of. Kind (laughs) of. Right. How long were you in Atlanta? On and off for 20 years. Okay, I went good. to college. I went to Spelman College there, and I always came back. I traveled a lot and went a lot of places for my work, but I always, always came back there because this is where the people, the most people who loved me were in that one place. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> my dad was there at some point. My sister was there. All my closest friends, all my formative friends were all there. So I just always kept going back. Mm-hmm. How did Rob Thompson reach out to you for this assignment? <laughs> yep. So he didn't. I um, bombarded him one okay. day. Uh-huh. I have a cultural strategy firm. I guess we'll talk more about that later. And I was already doing some work in Memphis. I was living in Nashville at the time. This is 2017. And I was coming up and down the highway visiting Memphis from time to time to work with the Memphis Music Initiative and the Memphis Black Arts Alliance. And I had a friend in town who was doing some work with Bridges. And she called me and said, are you in town? You have to go somewhere with me. And we drove to Clamburn Temple. And we basically barged in. It was a construction site at the time. The chandelier was on the ground. Everybody had on a hard hat but us. Mm -hmm. And we just walked in. Rob and Frank Smith happened to be there. And so I got to talk to them and got to look at the space and 
explain all of the things that were happening in my brain when I walked in the door because the space is, you know, like he says, it's like it begs for artistic expression and storytelling and the beauty of the space plus the history of it just had my mind reeling. And so I just kept in touch with Rob for a, a whole year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because I was clear. I was clear after my after 30 seconds of being in the building that I was supposed to do something in there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know to what extent. I certainly didn't think it was going to be the magnitude it is right now, but I knew it was going to be something. And so we just kept in touch for the year. And at some point, we realized that there was some work to do together. When was it when, when you first walked into the space? That was... I think early 2017. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it was right. definitely sunny outside. I didn't have a coat on, so it was spring maybe, but it was early on. Like uh-huh. I said, the building hadn't even reopened yet. The yeah. floor was still completely torn up, and it was you know it was a construction site. It's always good to give a shout out to to Frank Smith. And his, always good and, to give a shout out to Frank Smith and his efforts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. For listeners who don't know, yeah, Frank Smith. Yeah, so Frank is a local businessman and philanthropist, and he ended up with the building because he was he's a member of Downtown Church, which was worshiping in the Central Station building. And when they started to undergo renovations, they just got the boot, like, you know, as it happens when you start to renovate. And Frank was like, well, why are we renting? Like, why don't we just buy our own space? We need to have control over our own space. And they started looking for someone, and they found Claiborne Temple. Claiborne had been abandoned for 20 years, and lots of people had tried and failed to be able to get ownership and control of the space to be able to do many different things with it, and no one ever was able to. So lots of people discouraged him, but if you know anything about Frank, you know the more you tell him no, the more he tells himself yes. And so he did all kinds of things and got to the point where he was able to get title to the building and and purchase the building. And initially, it was supposed to be primarily the church building and then like some venue stuff during the week. But, you know, there was a lot of conversation with community members, particularly African-American community members here in Memphis and artists who basically said, like, this is a sacred space and you need to do something sacred with it. And that these ideas, these set of ideas are not going to work. And I always like give Frank a lot of credit because someone in his position normally would say, thank you for sharing. This is what I want to do. Like, you're welcome to come by or not. (laughs) But Frank really, because... He is an open-hearted person at his core. Like, whatever you think about him, Frank is a really soft-hearted man who who wants to do right and wants to be a part of the community and wants to figure out what his role is in that. As a wealthy, conservative white man who lives in Memphis, he is really struggling with what it is for him to be a part of evolving and transforming um, our community in the way that is his to do. And so he, to his credit, listened and said, okay, so I don't know how to do that. Well, you're asking me to do but what I won't do is this thing that you're asking me not to do so for a long time nothing happened and they really focused on stabilizing the building making sure it was safe opening it to the public allowing other folks to come in and rent the space or use it for free for community meetings and such and I'm always like a conversation about culture and transformation is always on the tip of my tongue, always at all times. You could wake me up in the middle of the night and I will say, yes, cultural strategy. Now, another thing. And so like when I met Frank and Rob, I just went in on because I was so inspired by that building and all these ideas and me explaining my work and the power of culture and transformation and storytelling connected to community transformation just like fell out of my mouth. And so I think when they met me, 
they their ears perked up because they knew that they needed to do something like that, but they had no idea how. And it's, and I just kind of walked, literally walked in off the street as a stranger and said everything that they needed to do. And they were like, oh, well, maybe we should start talking to her. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but even that, it's like hard, it's complex. You know, issues of race, class, gender, you know, all those things, transformation, you know, spirituality, politics, like all that is very complex. And so it took us a year for them to be able to say, okay, let's let's go for it and do it. I was reading in the the write up about Rob Thompson's work as executive director before you. And and he knew that this was going to be for him, it was going to be a temporary position and that uh, obviously you were a perfect fit. I just find it to be crazy that you just happened to walk in off the street and, and both of them were there. That's, I know. That's how God yeah. works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's Tell, no other explanation except for it was just divine intervention. A lot of listeners have never walked in the space. I mean, I've been in the mm-hmm. space numerous times. Tell me your impressions walking into that space, your feelings. The first time I walked in, the first thing I saw was the stained glass. Because it's among the most beautiful stained glass I've ever seen. And it's also, the building is very welcoming and warm. And you can feel the energy of, what is that energy called? Life. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) like, the building is alive. And the building, literally, I mean, I know this is going to sound really strange to people. So just bear with me. But I literally could hear the building talking to me when I walked in the door. And, like, telling me the stories that had happened. Telling me the stories it wants to tell for the future. I saw productions. I saw colors. And I saw people. Because the thing that's so beautiful about that building, or the thing that 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 building represents to me, and, and I understand that it's important to preserve sacred, important historical spaces. But the reason why that building is important is not because of the stained glass, not because of the organ, not because of the chandelier, but it's because of the people who gathered in that place and gave that place meaning. That is why that building is important. And so to me, that building is really about the life force of the people of Memphis who were fighting for their lives and fighting for their dignity and fighting for justice for themselves and their families. And that the energy of that is still very much alive in that space. And, and now in uh, I'm in Plaza um, next door, that beautiful thing. Yes. And, and <laughs> again, listeners, if, if you've not been to see the I'm a man Plaza yeah, next door, come over and yeah, go see it. Coming from Atlanta and growing up in New Jersey and all that, did you have any preconceptions of Memphis, <laughs> Memphis, Memphis? And, and, well, the Claiborne is kind of an afterthought there, but yeah. any preconceptions of Memphis coming into the city? I didn't because my relationship with Memphis was very shallow. You know, like I didn't know a lot. I knew I used to tour so I you know I have a former life in the music industry so I've been here many times on tour and I've spent some time here because the artist I work with her family is from here but I didn't have any expectations except for music like my relationship with Memphis is about music and you know the music here is the best in the world and so I was very excited to come here but I will say that there were people in my world in Nashville who were like, oh, are you sure you want to do that? You know, because I had a wonderful life in Nashville. I was on the board of the museum and I had a company and all this stuff. And people felt like I was giving something up to come here. And it was disturbing to me because I think this is such an amazing place and I couldn't understand why they would say such a thing. And after being here a while, I felt even more confused. (laughs) (laughs) Because 
the more I live here, the more I love it here, and the more of the future of this is like this is like such a broad, broad strong statements, but I promise I really believe them. Like I see the future of America in Memphis, I really do, and I think what I discovered or what I think I discovered is that you know just like anything else in in our country, there is a lot of perception determined because of race and class. And what I know is that from a, when we think about the future and the potential of this place and the assets that are here in Memphis, the people that are here, the artists that are here, the innovation that is happening here, that beautiful river that I just want to jump in every day. Like when we think about the assets here and we think about Nashville, like no shade to Nashville, but I feel like the assets here in Memphis have much more to offer and to give as we think about what America looks like in 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years. But because of racism and stuff, <laughs> then yeah. the perception is that Nashville is a wealthy white town and that Memphis is a poor black town and it's not safe, right? And so if you can get past whatever your preconceived notions are that are colored by your relationship with race and class, Memphis is undeniable. Yeah. It's undeniable. It is undeniable. And because of that, it's also such a beautiful place to work through and break through those particular issues um, here in this place. And that is one of the reasons why I came, because when I first moved here, I moved here with an agreement of being here for six months. Because the first thing that we decided to do was to build this musical called Union that's about the sanitation workers and set in Claiborne Temple. And so I agreed to come and do that work for six months, and I was going to go back to Nashville. But every day that I was here, I was less and less inclined to go back because I fell in love with this place, not just with that building, but like I said, with the people, with the artists here, with the conversation that was happening about what was possible in Memphis. And that's like, that's my conversation. I wanted to be a part of it. You preaching to the choir when it comes to that. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Mark Fleischer with Storyboard 30. You're tuned into FM 89.3, WYPL, and Storyboard 30. And we're talking to Anasa Trotman, the new executive director of the Claiborne Temple. Speaking of impressions, I was re- reminded of this yesterday. And speaking of the work that I think we can all do here in Memphis mm-hmm. and what an amazing place this is Mm -hmm. and how amazing I think I agree with you that I think it's going to be in the future. But I was reminded of this yesterday that a general perception, if we compare Dr. King's legacy in Atlanta versus Memphis, that in Atlanta, they can celebrate his life. And in Memphis, we carry the burden of his murder. Do you have any thoughts? Oh boy, do I. (laughs) I do Uh, actually my ears perk up when you use the language of murder because I think that we sanitize his death so much and that we we rarely acknowledge like the violent way that he died and the reasons why he died, right? And I think that that's really important. One of the things that part of this conversation for me about being here was that very thing. It's like being here and being so in love with this place and having people come up to me and say, I don't know if you want to move here. You know we killed Dr. King. More than one person said that to me. And I'm like, girl, that was the FBI. That wasn't you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh So much of the energy of this city is on that balcony, right? And so much of what people believe is possible here is is laying on that balcony with the shadow of Dr. King's body. And the truth is, 
a lot of people believe that the movement died here and the folks who live here are really holding that in their hearts and the, the mourning and the sorrow. Because also remember that two days before Martin Luther King was assassinated, a 16-year-old boy who had been killed by the police in that march was buried at Claiborne Temple also. And so the entire city, like you think a thousand people on the sidewalk in front of Claiborne Temple because they can't get into the funeral. And, and two days later... While the city is holding the sadness for this child that was murdered by the police, they now, on top of that, are holding the murder of Martin Luther King, which is a global phenomenon. Like the entire world, the entire globe of mourning is sitting on the hearts of the people of Memphis. It's hard to come back from that, especially if you're not having an intentional conversation and intentional mechanisms around healing to do that. And it's been 51 years, and I still feel the sadness here in this city, and I think it has a lot to do with why we are where we are here and why some people are still feeling hopeless and or cynical about what's possible here. And one of my big questions I always ask at Claiborne Temple is how can we perform a mass healing all over the city through our work? Because for me, that's the most, the first and most important thing that needs to happen for us to get to the vision. It's like, well, we can't even think about love and joy and sustainability and financial institutions and infrastructures for liberation of all people if we are so sad that we can't even see past that balcony. And I think the balcony is important, but I think like the combination of what is happening at the Civil Rights uh, Museum and like bringing attention to the violence and the legacy that was there, but combined with the reason why he came in the first place and really centering a new set of work at Claiborne Temple that says this work that was happening there was so important that it was the first and only time in his life that Martin Luther King joined a movement instead of leading one. That never had happened before. You know, I had never thought about it that Mm -hmm. way. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and for him, like Martin Luther King saw his future in the sanitation workers because he spent like if you know anything about his legacy, his life, the last year of his life was traumatically difficult for him because he had made literally one year to the day before a speech in New York City that said, yes, race is important. But if we are not transforming our work to be able to take care of race, class and militarism, then we are never going to get there. And he spent a year fighting his supporters, his financial supporters, his friends, his closest friends and colleagues, all telling him, Martin, you cannot do this. You are ruining our work. You are taking away our donors. You're blowing it, dude. Like, that's basically what they were saying. And he spent a year fighting a battle and saw the light for the victory of that battle in Memphis at Claiborne Temple and said, oh, these people get it. If I can go to Memphis and I can help them out and I can help them see a victory that I can have an exemplar for the work I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's why he was here in Memphis, bringing attention and healing back to Claiborne Temple and the work that happened there is not just about healing the city, but it's also about refocusing people on the real legacy of Dr. King, which was a transformation and expansion of his work to talk about race and class and militarism and that addressing those three things as a unit is the, is the pathway to our collective liberation. That's why I really like the word, you see, restoration. Yes. And you think, obviously, we, we all think of building restoration, like I said in my opening, but the word is used in conjunction with the healing that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in your career to this point, that's been a theme, uh. restoring, <laughs> restoration, yeah. healing, and all the more important that it takes place in that space. I want to read something. I just want to quote you on something in that regard. <laughs> uh-huh. We want this place, this to be a place where people have the space to heal, transform, and create. 
The transformation of a city requires the transformation of the people who live there. And we know there is no more transformative force than love. It's critical for us to embody love, particularly in conversations about justice and and equity. Sorry, I'm really blowing this. We believe that love was the core value that Reverend James Lawson and the sanitation workers carried with them in 1968. And that spirit, Claiborne, will be a place where people come together to heal, vision, and co-create the future of Memphis. Which is a lot of what Ooh, you've, you've said, but I love, I love that quote. Yes, I did too. I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the the programming yeah. you have continuing yeah. as the restoration work begins. Mm-hmm. It's truly a multi-layered restoration. Talk about some of the programs that have already sure. taken place. Primary. So there's two main programs. One, like I mentioned earlier, is um, Union, the musical that... We produced knowing that it was important, but not knowing how impactful it was going to be. And not just like from an entertainment standpoint where people are like, it's good, right? We did a good job, right? Producing it, but also the people in Memphis being able to see their story given back to them in a way that was respectful and honest and heartfelt in, and in a way that hadn't happened before. So lots of people got up in the audience and said, I've been here my whole life and I didn't know half of that stuff. Thank you so much for sharing my history with me or people standing up and say, I was there and thank you for telling my story. Cause I had never, I've never had a chance to, to tell it before. Also people who, you know, whose relationship with race is much different than mine who were like, I just saw this show and I, and I get it now. Like I understand as a white woman, what I'm supposed to do and what my conversation should be with my neighbors who are black. And so like so many people, their experience gave them restoration, (laughs) you know? And so, so that's a big part of my work now was just telling the story and telling it in such a way that it brings a conversation in community across race, class, location, gender, whatever the things are, because we don't believe that we should be visioning together if we don't love or trust each other. Because the vision that comes out of a broken community is much different than one that comes out of people who actually believe that they can depend on the folks who are in the room with them. And so we're doing a lot of talking right now, just and not not talking like, hey, what do you think we should do? But hey, have you met your neighbor? Do you know the experience of your neighbor? Do you like, can you share a meal together? Because the thing about love is that it's the thing that keeps you together when it's hard. But if you don't love each other, like this is going to be hard. Like on the first day, this conversation is going to be hard. So if you don't learn how to love each other, like you're out. After 20 minutes of conversation, you're like, oh, yeah, no, I don't even like you. So, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) And it's important for us to, to do that and... We now have the good fortune of touring the show around the country. And so, like, we're we're able to mimic and carry that engagement strategy that's being built around that show around the country so that we're not just having conversations here, but we're having them in Dallas, in Winston-Salem, in, you know, in D.C., in Baltimore. And then maybe if we're fortunate then we can have those folks talk to each other and say, like, what are you learning in Winston-Salem? What are you learning in New Orleans? What are you learning in Dallas? And how do we integrate that into what we're learning here in Memphis for the propagation of a future that works for everybody, especially in the moment that Memphis is in now because there's so much about to change in this city. Like, I think a lot about the fact that I lived in Atlanta, in D.C., in Nashville, all before gentrification happened, before a new wave of ideas and a wave of um, development and and an infusion of money 
And so like I know what that looks like when it's about to happen and I it's happening in Memphis. And what I have seen in those other places, places like Oakland, like that money, those ideas, those those folks will come in and then people have historically been in those neighborhoods, particularly black, brown, indigenous, poor folks, women get pushed out. And they don't get to participate in the bounty that is coming for the future. They don't get to participate in the creation of it or in in the rewards, right? So they just get knocked out. When we're living in a city that is squarely set in the Mid-South, ground zero for the destruction of the morality of our country— 400 years ago and and prior to that through you know the the wiping out of indigenous people and we're sitting like at ground zero for the restoration of that story right and so if folks who who are living out the legacy of those stories the 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 descendants of people who have lived in south memphis the descendants of the sanitation workers the descendants who of folks who lived in robert church's memphis if, if those folks are not not only just being considered but centered and involved in the conversations about what the future of memphis looks like it's going to happen here too you know, like we've already, many people have already been displaced from South Memphis with the destruction of the public housing projects. Whether you live on one side or the other of the opinion about that, what is true, regardless of your opinion, is that a thousand people lost their homes and had to move into neighborhoods where their families have not been. And, and folks were living in South Memphis for generations. Like I know someone who was five generations South Memphis and now displaced. And like, if you think about the connection to land and what it means to be a human connected to a piece of land, and then after five generations, you get put somewhere else. Like, what does that mean for you and your legacy? And what is the responsibility of our city and the folks who have not been displaced to say, we need to make space for those folks. We need to make space to make sure that descendants of the sanitation workers are benefiting from the things that are happening in the neighborhood where they made meaning. I have a theory on that that, that I can't wait. And <laughs> that there there's not only multi-generational healing necessary there with the displacement and I think a lot of people forget about how traumatic that is, especially when it's out of your control. Right. And right. and I think part of the city still holds on to the guilt of that mm-hmm. as well. We'll see. But that's my hope is that that um, if there is any guilty feelings, that that can be transformed as well. We have about two, two and a half minutes left. I want to talk oh, about no. <laughs> talk about um, I have a whole strain about guilt. I want to talk about till next time. Dangerous women. Ooh. That's what that's the series going on right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the space there yeah. in um, in uh, the Claiborne. Yeah. Talk about that for a second, if you would. Sure. So we did a three-part series just to kind of like see these relationships and conversations that we're talking about. The first one was um, on MLK Day, and it was about um, kind of like remembering the letter from a Birmingham jail and like interpreting it for people who didn't understand the language of that letter. And the second one was about the bicentennial and like the same conversation, like how do we make the next 200 years of Memphis actually work for everyone and not just some folks. And then the last conversation was dangerous women, which is really important to me because one of my big challenges at Claiborne Temple, not challenge, it's not a challenge. One of the things I think about a lot is how to make visible the women who are erased from the I Am A Man story. Mm-hmm. It's a very um, male-centered story, and rightfully so. It was all about the dignity of these men who are doing this work. That work didn't happen in a vacuum, and it certainly didn't happen without women. And so often in our history, we just forget and erase the women who have made so many of the things in our history happen. And it's important for us at Claiborne Temple to like restore the dignity of those women, too. 
mm-hmm. and have their story be told too. And so that um, dangerous women conversation is like about what it means to be a woman who doesn't follow the rules, which yeah. I apparently am not. And <laughs> how to create space for younger women and girls to know that their ideas have merit and their lives have, have value and they get to have whatever future they choose for themselves. We have to wrap up. But I want to mention, Ooh. I want to make sure we mention your website because <laughs> yes, there's, there's, there's a TED Talk out there, Ooh, which yeah. was amazing. <laughs> did I did. I oh sure did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so your website's very easy. Oh, yeah. Anasatroutman.com. It's www.anasatroutman.com. Yeah, it's on there. Go watch it. I'm really proud of that thing. Yeah, you should be. That's That was quite something. Quite moving, yeah. Anas Troutman, thank you very much for coming. Vance Durbin, our producer, thank you once again for keeping us somewhere within about a half an hour. Uh, Tommy Warren, the uh, programmer here at WIPL, and to the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, and to you listeners and supporters of the library and FM 89.3. From here in Memphis to the greater Mid-South and well beyond, thank you for listening in, and we hope you join us next time on Storyboard 30 for more stories, more ideas with those Memphis personalities and shapers who make our lives here in the Bluff City just a little bit better. Memphis, make it a great week. Mm